This is All the President's Minutes, and I'm your host, Blake Howard. In fact, I'm the producer of all the One Heat Minute productions. First and foremost, I just wanted to reach out with my empathy and solidarity for everyone in the United States of America, the African-American community, who once again are being forced to riot to be heard in the face of overwhelming and brazen police brutality. When I conceived of this show, I thought that it would be a great landing zone for conversations about cinema, about journalism, about history and about politics and where those things intersect. The show will go on. However, just some of the episodes that you're going to hear in the coming run of episodes have occurred before any of the events over the last week have unfolded. I once again want to wish my empathy and solidarity from Australia to my American brothers and sisters and to my dear friends and wish them safety in their protest, in their peaceful protest. And this is not unique to the United States. And any Australian who is listening has to have the morality and the fortitude to acknowledge that this lucky country that I feel guilty for continually saying that I'm lucky that I live in is built on the blood of our own First Nations peoples and Indigenous Australians continue to suffer the same plight as African-American citizens in the United States. And whether it's by agenda or legitimate legal restrictions, Australian press continue to be suffocated. And on this show, we're going to talk about it. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. Let's get into the show. It isn't the rebels lighting fires. It isn't the media exposing the reality. The problem is the reality. Just look at the last three months. Forget about policing. Look at the toll of the pandemic. More people of color are getting sick and dying. Why? Less access to care. More minorities are losing their jobs at a faster rate. Yet they make up the higher percentage of those at work right now in jobs deemed essential. Imagine how that feels. Helping more and being helped less. Just before we get started, I want to let you know that the great Javier Panza, who is on the show this week, and I recorded this interview a few weeks ago, I'm yet to have a chat to him about how his current reporting on the front lines in Los Angeles has changed and maybe... That will be a topic for another revisited time where he can come back and chat about it. But I hope you enjoy the episode nonetheless. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a man who we've been interacting for some time. Sort of, uh, you know, he's been kind of like Vincent Hanna. I've been kind of like Neil McCauley because he's an LA guy through and through. A proper on-the-ground reporter for the LA Times. And I think at some different points, he's stumbled on my crazy pursuits all the way from Sydney, um, uh, you know, waxing lyrically about Michael Mann. Um, He's currently a reporter and a digital editor for the LA Times. He's written for the Boston Globe, Seattle Times, the Orange County Register. And uh, he's a movie fan. And so it's my distinct pleasure to actually talk to my current guest when he's not being assigned to chasing the latest 
crazy gunman in the hills of Northern California. <laughs> Instead, he gets to talk to me about a newsroom in circa 1972 as the health of a senator is failing and people are huddling around a television and people are searching through beautiful tactile phone books. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome my guest, Javier Panza. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Thanks for including me on the project. <laughs> it's it's not an inclusion. It's it's uh, uh, you know I think what I've done is just like I did with my last show is I canvas fun people that uh, also seem to be into my crazy nonsense that is online and uh, and you just seem like especially for this show um, not only an LA guy and a guy who likes Michael Mann and obsessive individuals and people um, and is equally an obsessively prepared individual for this show but someone who feels like can add deeply to the conversation around the political fuckery and the journalism to entangle with that political fuckery of this great movie. Thanks. <laughs> so here we are. We're at the 49th minute of Alan Pakula's 1976 masterpiece. Can you tell me, uh, you know, as a journalist, as a as an LA guy, you know, you're born in Oakland, so or, you know, grew up in Oakland, so like you, that's hometown essentially. Um, how? What's your relationship with this movie? Well, I think I first came across The Insider and that was like the big journalism movie that opened my eyes to the cinematic wonders of asking people questions, getting answers, trying to figure out what's going on. And it wasn't until maybe a couple years later where All the President's Men was introduced to me, probably like in a high school history class, as part of the broad story of America, where these guys are like figures in folklore almost who through dogged phone calls and looking at records, bring down a president. And the story is obviously much more complex than that. And it's kind of amazing the way that Woodward and Bernstein have become mythologized and the way that what you learn in the history books, but also just through the culture in America of, you know, the Woodward and Bernstein isn't quite what happened. <laughs> so when you watch the movie fully, you see like, oh my God, like, you know, these guys are only 28 and 29. Woodward doesn't really know what he's doing at the very beginning. Uh, he doesn't know Spanish, but also that they, that's the kind of, towards the end of the movie, one of the big dramatic things is that they fuck up the story. Yes. And when you read the book, they're fucking up left and right. And so <laughs> it's a much more textured thing that's much truer to life and so much more interesting than kind of what I think the average American, at least, it's such an, a tremendous accomplishment what they did and the role they played in eventually building up enough evidence that the Senate and the House did their thing and eventually Nixon resigned that it just becomes so like foundational. It's almost like a fairy tale that like these guys can do this. Um, so when I saw it for the first time, I was like, I was blown away at how not heroic the journey is in terms of at the end, they're standing, you know, they're watching Nixon resign. It's so much more tactile and it's so much more about the tension of, you're pushing this rock up a hill like Sisyphus and you're fucking <laughs> on the hill and you got to push it back up. And eventually you get it to this point where you don't actually know what's going to happen. You just kind of get it to where you get it and the movie ends. And we all know the ending, which I think is what allows it to spend so much time on the little things. But uh, it's just uh, revisiting it, it. It's this thing that it gets richer every time you see it. And as a reporter, you just, it becomes funnier too. Like I totally <laughs> 
the um uh, like the looks like Redford does so much with his eyes in this movie when he's rolling his eyes rolling his eyes on the phone when McGregor is like the issues of this campaign are peace and prosperity and he's like get over yourself dude we all know where it's going <laughs> Um, so I, don't, I, just, I, I love it. It's, uh, it's nowadays, if you talk to reporters under 35, under 40, even shattered glass or the insider, it's kind of the cooler, edgier pick for the best journalism movie. Cause it has so much more of a hard edge critique on media and capitalism and corporations. But this one, there's something about the kind of the romance of it that just is so like it just envelops you. It, it is kind of like a warm blanket, but it's also just so insane because it's all really happened and it's so it's almost (laughs) it's i the part that really stuck out to me this viewing is i I don't think i've seen this since uh 2016 the the day of our presidential election when i got home that night at like midnight i was so burnt out by i I was covering congressional races at the time that i just needed something to turn on to kind of calm down and this was (laughs) yeah it was like oh let's just get this going and it was a fun preview of the next couple years or i guess what four years of, of the really amazing reporting going on in this country. But, uh, it, it, uh, it really is such a like centering experience to watch this and also to read it and kind of realize, you know, how much of it they really kind of gloss over and make much more of a like Hollywood version and how much of the, the, the fun stuff they take away from burn of the Woodward. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but it's, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, the one thing that I was a few great things I want to talk to you about there. One thing is the whole Sisyphus analogy is, is it's so right. And in the book, uh, and I want to just be emphatic because I don't, I don't know if I talk about it enough, but at the beginning of every one of the shows, I try and narrate along with some of the book uh, as we're going. And what's, what's going to be interesting as the show progresses is as we get beyond what the book actually tells. And in a couple of the recent narrations that I've been doing at the beginning of the book, from uh, the beginning of the show, sorry, from the book is things that we don't see on screen. And that's actually what's great when you do read it is because you're like, there are so many other players, there are other elements, there are people that are people who have to get to the next person, to get to the next person, to get to the next person, to get to the character that we interact with in the film. So you can see there in the adapted, you know, in the adaptation from William Goldman and a couple of the, the runs that they've done, they're like, how do we stream? line this and keep this anchored to these guys and past time and whatever we've got to do but i love how you said it's like sisyphus where you're pushing it uphill and they don't know what they're going to do because also the end of the movie is like imagining sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill saying i will let the rock roll down over me if 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 i if i fucked up and that's basically something that's so wonderful about this entire exercise as well um and really interesting to hear you say too and i think it's so true is generationally what the what the latest journalism movie is because i think shattered glass definitely underrated obviously um the insider feels like a a brother to uh, all the president's men very much so like tonally around uh you know firstly paranoia cinema um uh, with alan Pakula, but secondly with just like an impossible system that rather than a governmental system it's a corporate the corporate entities are the entangled forces that are coming down on you um, and lives being in danger on both sides, whistleblowers and not. Um, so yeah, really, really great to hear you say that. So um, what is, uh, you know, and it's also funny. There's one other thing is I've spoken to a few people now who, whose last viewings of this movie were in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> and I was like, you now just hit the nail on the head. It's like, that is a great programmer at HBO. 
or whoever it was that had it on TV that night because everyone went home that night and they're like, you know what? You know what the balm is? If we don't like this, if we just go home and watch all the presidents, man, we have a template. We have at least a lionized Hollywood version template um, of what to do in the next steps. That's so great. But, uh, and, and is that uh, when you're now looking back at all the presidents, man, and the insider, are they still your like one and two now? Yeah, the the only possible, I think it's the insider is still my favorite. I think because it's so much more of a profoundly shaking experience when you are done. And you're thinking about Alpacino's line that what got broken here doesn't come back together, and you're just thinking about the heroes didn't win here. They the the, the news organization didn't do the right thing. They only did the right thing kind of when what they weren't doing was exposed in the wall street journal and all this other stuff that's going on. And it really is something that just kind of, it's like a warning. Like you need to make sure that you don't get involved in these kinds of situations. You need to avoid this. And I was so amazed when the whole Ronan Farrow stories were coming out and you learn what, how NBC news was handling it. Yes. I was thinking of myself, Am I dumb or is it just like The Wire? And then <laughs> a couple of months ago, Ronan Farrow was on the Mark Maron podcast and he was explaining everything that was going on really quickly. And every now and again, he paused and asked Mark Maron if he'd seen The, uh, the Insider. And he'd be like, yeah, it's, like, it's just like The Insider. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's, I think for that reason. And I think the other thing that The Insider has that I think makes it more powerful than in this film, and that this film has a bit of, is the fact that the source is the main character and you really see the dramatic arc of what does it cost this guy to disclose what he knows and to do the right thing. And I think that sources generally don't get enough credit for the things that they bring. And I think it's changing more now, but it's something that I, I did my undergraduate work at Berkeley and Lowell Bergman was a professor at the time. I wasn't school but i would go crash a lot of their events and see him talk a bunch and his one of his main things was he thought there should be an equivalent of what we have in some states a shield law for reporters but i don't have to disclose their sources in court he wanted something like that for sources and he was just talking about how much respect they deserve and don't get and they even have the mark felt scholarship at the berkeley j school named after him after deep yes so i that, that is what I think makes the insider so powerful is it gets into like the dialectic between a reporter and a source. And this film, I think, really gets cooking when they start knocking on the doors and you see the fear on their, uh, on their faces and their eyes and just all that stuff that we get into a little bit in this minute when he calls up Dahlberg. And it's just like the interplay between someone who knows some stuff, doesn't want to tell, or maybe does want to tell, but knows they shouldn't tell, or is just considering what will happen if I do tell them what I'm <laughs> And it's, that's the kind of stuff that, that really gets me going when I see one of these films. So besides the fact that, you know, grinding through phone books is not something that you ever have to do as a reporter now, I like to imagine someone like yourself, Javier, like doing the, the great Redford Woodward here of like making the phone call and asking like a nuclear weighted question <laughs> you know what did your $25,000 check end up in the, in the bank account of a Watergate burglar like powerhouse question that like leaves him crippled and stumbling over his words at the beginning of this conversation it's such a powerhouse thing that that must be relatable still 
you know, asking asking loaded questions to people that you're sort of cold calling to get with stories and trying to do whatever you can to get them on the record saying something pretty interesting. I think there is something universal even, I mean, I've clearly never done any kind of work on the scale of this, but there is something universal to the, the feeling in your, in your stomach when you make a phone call and you ask someone a question and you're just waiting to hear <laughs> what they're going to say when it's something that their answer is going to be very determinative of like what happens next in this whole situation. Like is this story going forward. Is this story further stalled? Is the story just done now, depending on, you know, what happened. And that aspect of it is very relatable. Just when you're sitting there waiting, like, what are you going to say next? Cause then you got to be, what am I going to say next? And that bit is very, it's, I think it's, it's what elevates this movie is that they knew to give a star like Robert Redford six minutes unbroken just to like see his face reacting to what Dahlberg's saying. And then they add in the, the calling McGregor, which I think temporally happens later in the book, but they're smart enough to like convey all of that in this one scene. Yeah. It's, it's, they, that's where they make a couple of really beautiful calculated movie making choices of like, we're going to put these phone calls together because I think the longer, the kind of fun endurance test for Redford as an actor as Woodward is exactly that, is watching all the machinations of his brain. And I think you put it best as like the stomach, the the anticipation that just lands square in your, right in your solar plexus of like, oh God, what are they going to say next? And we get to experience all of that on Redford's face. Like, I'm going to say this loaded question and that pause feels like it takes an eternity. And then he comes back and he's like, yes. And you're like, oh this guy just actually answered that like completely incriminating question. <laughs> so what the hell is he going to say next? And so then rolling with those and playing them off each other and like Mr. Gre- oh, Mr. Stolberg, like getting the stumble, getting that organic. It's just so beautiful. So look, I, 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 I cannot wait to talk to you more about this minute after the minute. So I think the best thing that we can do right now is watch the 49th minute. Oh my God, we're nearly at 50 minutes. Holy dooly. Of 138 um, of Alan J.P. Cooler's uh, 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, from the book, based um, on the book by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. So what Javier and I are going to do right now is watch that minute. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Outside line, please. Yes. Thank you. Please, Mr. Dahlberg? Yes. Kenneth Dahlberg? Yes. This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Yes. About that $25,000 check deposited in the bank account of one of the Watergate burglars, Mr. Bernard Barker. <laughs> That's the game, Javier. That's the game. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes, yes. I love. I just love that, that the um, ah, so much that as it's as he sits down, he's looking 
at a piece of paper off screen and he throws his notebook aside and he's grabbing the phone and he's, and he's not breaking like his eye contact with the phone. Like he's kind of psyching himself self up or focusing on what am I about to do right now? Yes. Then he gets the, the notebook out of the, the, the drawer and he's just trying to like figure out what exactly is coming next. Cause the thing is I, I was just watching the previous 10 or 15 minutes and it's so wonderful how this is all paced where they, have their first cut of the story. Bradley puts it inside. They've kind of been like, you know, had their egos put in check that they're not totally hitting the mark on the story. And then it's the, the he has to go talk to Deep Throat. And then you get like the great bit where he, uh, Bernstein goes to Florida. And that is like just the, the, the ultimate reporter experience of I need to go to a government office. I need to find some piece of paper that's going to give me a hint on where to go next. And the true like masters of the universe are the bureaucrats who control the paper. <laughs> you always have to be very nice to the, you know, the people who work behind the scenes who control the flow of information when you're trying to get court documents or whatever. And, and they really capture the tedium of all that. And then you start cooking again once they get the name Dahlberg. And this is so almost plays like a car chase once you build up to this moment where he gets the name, he looks into the phone book and they find him and it might not be him, but you're not sure. And then once the guy responds, it's like, okay, we're on. And the camera is moving in. It's, it, it captures something so like it just gets my heart pumping thinking about it. <laughs> it's it's on those much smaller stories and like, you know, breaking news, you're trying to find somebody and you know, there are other people trying to find them right now. And you're like, you got them on the phone and you're just like, Oh shit, they're here. Um, and you just kind of go with something while you're trying to think of your actual next question. Your, your mind is just racing. Cause you, the thing is with any phone call, especially in a conversation like this is if they hang up, you never know if you're going to get the, another chance to talk to them ever. So you really have to like move in tactfully, but get to the point immediately. That's the thing that always gets me excited and has extremely high anticipation for these moments in this movie and this particular moment in this movie is that exact phenomenon, which is I love so much that he loads up that question, that first question like with, the way to the universe. And when it lands and he says, yes, I love exactly what you said, which is the panic of like, oh shit. Not only is it the person, not only have they validated my preliminary thoughts, it's like, oh, now what do I do? Like now what, (laughs) now where does this go? Because if they're willing to answer such a loaded or like calculatingly loaded question to begin with, then they must be ready to rock and roll, right? Like they must be ready to go on this. And so- What's so wonderful and, you know, obviously as we do in this show, we have to talk in and around the minute and the rest of the scene is like the weird and wonderful machinations of this scene is just how bizarre it gets. Cause it's like, I just, my wife has been kidnapped and you're like, wait, what even is going on in this scene? And so watching him process it in this, um, but I just love that. Like, this is the perfect moment where you, you literally have hooked him. Like you've hooked them. They're on the hook but instead of it just being like a baby fish, it's a marlin. And so you don't, you're like wrangling the biggest catch that this guy is going to go on the record about corruption in creep and you've got to do something about it. It's so wonderfully, it's so wonderfully put. And, you know, and for all of his 
power as a leading man, Redford here is just so magnetic and you're so into his face and you're so into the please don't F this up ethos of this entire thing that he's doing, this entire process he's going about. And what he's getting at already, but that gets heightened in a couple of minutes, is just the confusion of how much does this guy know? Does he know that his check has gone to creep and was used for Watergate? Yes. Or does he just know that I gave him some money? Who knows what they did with it? And then he's trying to figure out what to ask next, what to ask next, and how to like go through this web of information with this guy who, at the moment, is kind of an unwitting partner in like exposing everything wrong going on with creep. Meanwhile, everyone else in the newsroom is paying attention to the breaking news that <laughs> he'll be dropping out of the ticket. And I love that he, that he, I think in this minute, he touches his ear once to kind of focus. And later on, it gets more, uh, gets more rowdy. Everyone's getting rowdy behind him. It's funny because they're like, because right. at the beginning of the minute, that's what I love about the Eagleton thing breaking is that like the beginning of the minute, there are still people hovering, like going to the desk, going, going to the copy desk, right. coming back, coming back, grabbing a smoke from their desk, going, grabbing a piece of paper, whatever. And you just see like the sort of standard hum of the Washington Post office. But when the announcement happens or some new speaker comes on that TV and it's that beautiful thing, like everyone just rushes around and then that, that chorus of noise is all happening. And he's like doing the thing, um, covering his ear. But yeah, it's, it's so it's such a great thing because like even today, I remember at my um, in my day job there was the breaking news when um, President Trump in the states closed the borders of the United States, and the, and on the same day Tom Hanks was do- diagnosed with COVID nineteen, on the same day the NBA closed, and I just remember our media team um, that was there like they've got TVs and a whole bunch of different news outlets, and they sort of change the sound to whichever one is more relevant. But yeah. I just remember that at the time there was like multiple news stories breaking and we're all watching the screens together. And it was like the, the whole business just was like stopping watching the screens and watching the ticker and just being like, holy crap. It was like everyone around that campfire. And it's exactly that moment that's happening there. But he has to like, he's the one guy who's blocking it out and ignoring the crowd and going, this is way more important. Yeah. It is a wonderful thing to consider because these days everyone is getting their information so desperately on Twitter and then like if you see breaking news sometimes you say holy shit but sometimes you just slack it to somebody and it's so often in our, in our newsroom the only thing that really gathers people is when there's a car chase going and they put it on like <laughs> all the local TV stations everyone's like oh shit what highway is this on who's expecting like, like oh what are this guy's tactics right now? Like, oh, is, is the pit maneuver coming? Or, you know, oh, this guy needs to get on the 605 and not the 105. And it becomes like an episode of the, the that's an elk the Californians. But the, um, I do love that they capture the, the newsroom hubbub, like everything calming down with him, where he's like, I'm focused here, but everyone else is totally distracted by this commotion. And I love when the camera, like it, it telescopes in on him slowly and it really has this, I mean, once the scene's over and you notice like, holy shit, we're totally with him and we don't even know what's going on with everybody else. It captures a sense of like tunnel vision that you get when something is, is expanding in front of you. And you're like, holy shit, like, I think I got this. Like, I think this interview is really like fucking making the solid. And now like everything's different. Like I got to consider like what other possible avenues this could go down that I wasn't even considering before. And it really communicates that just in like, a single slow zoom in. And it's, it's, it's just one of those like the coolest things that is makes him so 
I don't know, it's just like amazing, like a magician where he doesn't move really. He just lets the framing and everything create this intense effect with not a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I like what you just said is he's got a magician like quality. Like he's not, it doesn't, it's, it's that misdirection of, it doesn't feel like he's doing so much, but just the most minor focusing and it's in that, you know, you know, sort of split diopter view where you can see everyone crisply in the background at the beginning. And then it's just fading that away. It's just taking them out of focus and bringing Redford solely into focus into that classical shot. And you're just like, it's so subtle because you're ultimately your eyes are drawn to Robert Redford. Let's just put it right out on front street, wherever Robert Redford is, that's where your eyes go because that's what movie stars do. Like you want to see where they are in every scene and Redford knows that innately at this time. Obviously, he's A, beautiful, B, completely magnetic persona. Um, and so you're just watching him in every one of those scenes and they give him these platforms to do it. So as an actor and as a producer of this thing, he's getting to show his dramatic acting chops, but also they just, you know, they're like, it's it, he's not getting pitches that he can't hit. They're putting the ball on a tee and they're going, here you go, like knock this out of the park. And that's exactly what's happening. So that's what I love about this. It's like, it's just going, here's the hubbub. Here's what you've seen. All these split diopter shots, you know, where you can see everything in crisp focus in the background and the humdrum and what's happening. And right now we're just going to dial that away. We're just going to take that out. And just that, that, that is magician shit because it's like, it's misdirection that is literally happening in front of your eyes. And until you and I like, or, or until anyone uh, who's listening along it as well, until you dive into this film and into that artistry and you like start breaking it down, you're like, wow, that that is a real choice that that it does exactly what you said. It's like it laser focuses you in on him, laser focuses you in on this lead in the story. Nothing else will distract you. Your myopia is there. Like it doesn't, it's not quite as literal as the tunnel in heat demonstrating myopia but but it's it's a very subtle version of that same idea which um which is equally powerful in this in this whole sequence i think yeah i also enjoy that i mean if you were in the audience in 1976 eagleton dropping out was not that long before so you probably you're watching a little bit audio wise but if you don't totally know what's going on they bring it back up in the next news meeting when they're all talking about, well, who's the VP going to be? So they're offering everybody, nobody wants it. And then you get the editor saying, like, this fucking watery story. Like, I don't know what the <laughs> fuck you is. And it really captures, I think, especially coming after the, the Ned Beatty scene where he's, like, just totally putting off burn scenes because he's got to worry about his local DA race, where you get the sense that, like, nobody else really cares about the story except for, like, the know. <laughs> yes. And... I love that they're they're carrying that vibe throughout the movie because I feel like a, a lesser filmmaker they really would be doing like more speechifying about we are journalists we are holding the powerful accountable and we will you know plant the American flag at the end of this movie but Pakula is smart enough and, I, and Goldman is smart enough to know that since everyone knows how this ends they can spend all this time capturing the minutia of just the first like third of this book in this reporting effort and then cut it off and really like let the conspiracy vibe sit in and just let your mind go into all these crazy places, which I think is, is the other benefit of when he doesn't move the camera a lot is it allows you to look at every part of the frame and think about what's going on and think about how Redford's processing information, 
how, I mean, as a reporter, I'm thinking like, well, what would I do if like I was having to figure this out? Like, what would I be asking? And it just lets you get so absorbed in all of it. It's totally nuts. Because uh, that's the other thing that I think about a lot. You know, I obviously in a completely different tangent, it's like you occasionally do reporting stories and interviews and uh, for other things and other publications. But I talk a lot on podcasts and so talking to people, different people. And, and I just think like, that's such a ballsy move. Like it's also so against what you would traditionally think from a, you know, you're trying to extract information out of someone. It's like, you usually give them a, like a, a sweetie pie question to start with, especially when you're talking to a celebrity or a filmmaker, if you want to get to harder questions, you give them the softballs first and then, then you can move in a little bit harder, but it's like that opening gamut of like, I'm going to throw the loaded question first. That's yeah. And, and you're so right. There is the, the stillness is so many other scenes, um, so many other films and journalism films or investigative films and things like that, they kind of want to, they want to get you in front of the source. They want to get you in front of the person. They want to do this. And I think this movie is, it has to accept its fate that if you don't learn how to make these scenes dynamic, because so many of them were phone calls, like you can't get away with, oh, they were doing door knocks. Like you said, that's a really interesting part of the story. But like the beginnings is you're sitting in the office and you're anchored. When you actually go out into Washington, the movie changes. It's the next act of the movie. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, I think what, what you're saying, um, you know, so, so beautifully there is like, they have to make it interesting and stillness is a massive part of it. And that's a very like, it's not a very American move at that time. It's more of like a European thing. You know, M Michael Haneke is a filmmaker that does it as well. Just like plants the camera down and like might do a glacial slow zoom over six minutes in a courtyard. And you're like, what yeah. am I even looking at? And the, the, you're meant to have those emotions, but at least here you've got, you know, Robert Redford to look at, which is nice. But, uh, but also you, you can then go, all right, this is, what am I trying to absorb here? What What is he doing? What am I doing? What are they watching? And I think that that's, that there's a great um, switch that flips in your mind, which is what you reminded me is like, after you've watched this movie for the first time or the sixth time or the hundredth time as, as it is with me, I don't find myself focusing on the conversations anymore. I'm like laser focusing on that TV. I'm like, what are they listening to? What's Eagleton saying? What part of the speech is that up to? I wonder if I can Google and if I can find that news report that they're watching because you start to go through those motions as well in your head because it's just really, it's a real blast. Yeah, and it does, it is one of those things where reading the book, I was rereading it and I was remembering all these things that I'd forgotten, details in the story. And I thought maybe, you know, this phone call doesn't happen at the exact time that Eagleton drops out or whatever. But in the book, they say it all happens on the same night. And I thought that was so wild that that was one, the case, and two, that they were able to capture these two pretty monumental things. Because it does capture the sense that Nixon was so clearly going to destroy the Democratic ticket after <laughs> this. After the guy has to drop out because he has a history of getting electroshock therapy, it's like if you can't how <laughs> many without like taking that into account, like they're probably you know not a great sign for your ticket. But uh, I, it's the the thing that that I was thinking about more this time was like when you're in the newsroom, it, it really is kind of an amazing experience because there are all these pods everywhere, there's people making phone calls, and this really captures this idea that like. While you're looking, doing your thing, looking at the TV, doing whatever the hell you're doing, looking at Twitter, like there are all these people in the newsroom and they're all making phone calls and you have no idea like what they're asking 
mean, sometimes you can overhear some stuff, but other times you're just like, man, I wonder what, you know, like Matt Hamilton over there is doing. And then like, you know, 18, it's like, oh, well, he's won, you know, the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism because <laughs> horrible abuse going on at this, uh, by this gynecologist. And you're just like, that, that is kind of like the beauty of a newsroom is all this stuff going on. You never really like quite know. And to be in this newsroom watching the Eagleton speech while like over there in the corner is like this 29 year old, you know, Woodward on the phone with somebody. It's, it, it like, it captures how they were so alone in this pursuit, like relative to everybody else in the newsroom. Like they're chasing the bigger stories, the election. And it captures something that the book says pretty explicitly. I mean, there's even times in the book where the newsroom is making fun of Bernstein because he's struggling to speak in Spanish with these sources. <laughs> and thinking, I, I thought that was the, the most true to life thing about a newsroom is that Bernstein's trying to figure out what's going on with Watergate and they're all making fun of him because he can't speak Spanish. And they're joking <laughs> that Bernstein has heard the whole Watergate story, but he doesn't know what it means. To <laughs> It's so true to a newsroom. People would be like roasting this guy, and it turns out he's chasing the biggest story, maybe in political <laughs> story. And and I love that in the film. Ultimately, what that is is like, oh, I've made some contacts. I've I've made some calls to some people that I know in Miami, and we miss whole chunks of you know. I made I made some calls down to a Miami office or you know a, a Miami lawyer or whatever, and like this is him trying to figure it out. Yeah, like of course, of course, in the middle of a newsroom. The fun thing is also all of your friends completely busting your balls the whole day, like about just everything, about any and everything that they can tease you about and moving on. But that's, that's again, something that I love about this movie and something I love about this minute is that um, their story, these two, you know, 28 and 29-year-old up-and-comers, um, I'm always fascinated by just the ongoing work of everyone else in around in that newsroom. Like there is a horde of people that are working – big metro reporters, big political reporters that are tackling the whole, you know, the actual race, the actual election yeah. race, like and how invested and involved they are. And then all the culture reporters like joking around about how, you know, um, uh, you know, joking around about who's sleeping with who in, in Washington circles and how that might end up in the papers, etc. And And then you've got these two guys that are on assignment and they're just grinding and grinding and grinding through. Can I ask, because you are such a, you know, now being a, especially a digital editor at the Times and a reporter, when you look at this, and I've just heard this from a few people in newsrooms before, but interested particularly, you know, watching your plethora of work that's still going on during this damn pandemic. Um, does this, does does looking back at being on a single story, because it's so f- rarely happens does that look like a dream to you <laughs> like does it look like like imagine like going imagine having this much time to just go to a library for a little bit of time well it, it is one of those things that it's it's funny how the film portrays it versus the book where the book makes clear that the editors want Bernstein off this fucking Watergate story and back to covering Virginia politics you know in an election year yes. and they're trying to get other, other stuff to do and they really have to like fight to stay on it fight whereas the fighting tooth and nail to stay on it the whole time in the book right whereas the film is kind of like they're just going which is a rarity in a newsroom though there are occasions where something so nuts happens and you're on it and they're like if you're on it like just keep going as long as the story is going and then often you know like after a week or two where you're like oh man i'm on this like intense project (laughs) or like this or that or 
Whereas some other people will get on something and they're just like there for months, it seems like. And you're like, whatever happened to that person? And you're like, <laughs> they have like, you know, weird like office they've created in the corner doing their thing. Um, but it is, so it, it is nuts to think about, especially when they have to go to the Library of Congress to go through all those records or any, or even going through the phone books, all that stuff. Now you'd be looking into, you know, several databases and you'd be like running queries on well, how is Dahlberg spelled or is it Ken or Kenneth or is it, you know, uh, an old system where I have to go up all uppercase or all lowercase. Like it's a different set of skills where you're trying to like figure out where this person might be and if their phone number is even listed versus, you know, is a voter registration, just have an address, in which case you got to look in the property records to find something else. And, and so it's a different kind of thing in terms of the tools you're using, but it is the same kind of, you know, focus where you're just like, I need a little bit to get it the next thing, go to the next thing. You just get the person on the phone. And once you get on the phone, you're so exhausted from finding out how to contact them. You're like, Oh God, what is, Oh, right. Like, well, you, do you, do you know about this thing that's going on? And it's, um, it is, I think what makes the movie so timeless is like the essentials of reporting are also there. Like find the relevant parties, figure out, you know, what they know and then use that to kind of broaden it out as much as you can while also realizing that like this is a newspaper that publishes daily and you need to like get a fucking story done. And it's, it's part of what I think makes this movie so fascinating is that the, it's so ingrained in American culture that if you take too long on a story an editor will be like, come on, can you file the fucking thing? It's not Watergate. Like it's something that comes (laughs) you know what we're emergency like come on now like let's keep going like let's like Ken Xavier <laughs> and uh, it is so funny how it gets so outsized because of that and then you actually you know come back and you watch it or you read it especially and you're like oh this is a much more human story of you know failures and errors and overcoming that and moving on to the next thing um, I had totally forgotten that at one point in the book, they accused some guys who had nothing to do with Watergate of receiving the FBI memos that they didn't actually receive. Um, or no, that, that they were saying they received them and they were detailing Watergate, but they were just receiving standard memos. And, but these guys were like struggling to find jobs because they were named in the Washington Post receiving these memos. And so it, it is such a more rich thing as you revisit it and as you you know, listen to, uh, to Sloburn after the election, everyone was trying to come up with these kind of like simplistic comparisons between Trump and Nixon. And I thought that podcast gets at it so well that it's so, there's so many tangents going on and so many random things that occurred to allow this to happen that you really have to study it. And it's like context and you can't assume that that's, kind of thing happens again no and and i've really luckily got to talk to leon nafark on the show as a fan of slow burn and you know leon and i talked about you know uh you know what it would like my, my fascination i and i said i've said it a few times on the show but i just wish richard nixon had twitter because it would have been wild around the time that he was his story was being published and that yeah. that, that, that would have just been a treat number one Number two is, you know, I think at a time when you're doing recording, and and this is what I was said to Leon at the time, so sorry if I'm covering ground that folks have already heard, but um, it's about 24 episodes ago, just in case you're looking for it. Um, I think that we are so more accustomed, Javier, to technical glitches in our jobs. Like, oh, shit, we lost those files. 
or that batch of transactions or we lost whatever it is. Like, you, you, oh, damn, that whole email server went down. You know, and we've lost the articles between 2016 and 15 or whatever, whatever it is. People have had blogs that have crashed. People have had diaries, that, whatever it is. And so for me, it's like, it just felt so plausible when Leon, Leon and I were talking. He's like, he's like, the biggest thing that surprises me about Nixon is that he just didn't destroy the tapes. That he instead had people write the transcripts and then go back and then have false transcripts that people could then immediately refute. And just that's one of the big crazy elements of that whole slow burn um, exercise for me. And I and what I what I found really interesting and fascinating and and enjoyed myself talking to him about was like, if that happened with Trump and we knew there were tapes it seems so plausible that they could destroy them and say there was a tech glitch. And then someone, some person who we eventually find out like through, you know, you know, digital investigation, we find out that someone did delete them. They get a slap on the wrist because we don't know what's on the tapes and they're not going to get charged for what's worst case scenario. But I'm like, imagine Nixon in a modern time going, Oh yeah, we had a glitch and we lost the tapes from, we, we lost all the tapes for the last six months. And it's like, that's that seems totally plausible to me and a way to get around it. Whereas Nixon's hubris was really funny because he was like, "No, I am going to be candid. I didn't do anything wrong." And people are reading the transcripts and going, "Oh my god, he had a death list. He had this. He had that. He's a nutbag." There's a very funny Q and A from 2014 that uh, Bernstein and Woodward did with uh, some other journalists of the Post, where they're talking about just recent tapes that have been released by the, the Nixon library. And they're just like, I, I forget what exact thing it was, but it, it was Bernstein was just like, I can't believe this guy was like seeing so much crazy, like anti-Semitic shit where he thought everything was this conspiracy. And it, it does get to the, I mean, it's so nuts where you come into this movie with like carrying years and years of history and then you're kind of surprised when it ends and you're like, oh, like there's no H.R. Holden in this movie. There's no nope. any really. It just, it's so, and I think what makes it so rich is that they, they narrow their focus down to like, you, you get to Sloan and that's about it. Like no one beyond there is really seen except for the guy on TV. And it makes it so much more scary in a way, especially when they're delivering the post via car to the White House. Or it's almost like, you know, Dracula's fucking mansion or something. <laughs> It just, you, you fill in the rest of your imagination and it makes it so much more intimidating that these guys totally don't know what they're up against when the movie starts. And they really don't even totally understand halfway or even towards the end of the film where this is going. Yeah. They're just grinding and pushing. And it makes it fun to watch this with like Nixon a couple of days later. And you just see all the unraveling going on and like the crazy, you know, Shakespearean Oliver Stone <laughs> acid trip of a movie. Um, it's it's almost like this like a Nixon expanded universe between this and, <laughs> and it's the post and you know the the Slowburn show that's coming where I, we just can't get enough of like what was going on with this fucking guy that like all these other characters get pulled in. It's uh, it's it's great <laughs> i can't think of a better way to end this show than just advocating for the nixon cinematic universe way more than the marvel one so right now i we can definitely javier and i can strongly recommend and all the president's men post frost nixon nixon and the slow burn show which is excellent from leon nafak which is out now and the podcast because it's just a wild thing and and i think you're so right it's like when there's a guy with that much power you usually associate 
really crazy uh, personal anxiety and conspiratorial thoughts with people who do not have any power. And what's even crazier is when a guy who's the most powerful man in the world is talking like a troll on a Reddit thread. So it's just this incredible, incredible thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, the the last thing I I wanted to mention was to prepare for this, I watched Clute and the Parallax of You. And it's so nuts how his immediate prior film has maybe the worst journalist ever put on (laughs) No, he's never really asking questions. He's just kind of inserting himself in situations and never at any point like documenting anything. Even at the beginning of the film, he's not even taking notes of this like political event where the conspiracy hasn't even really started as far as he's concerned. But the thing that that I found so fascinating is Clue and the Parallax in this all kind of operate from the point of view that the rich, the powerful, the people who are very, you know, square and conservative, they're the ones behind the scenes of these crazy conspiracies. And include like, you know, it's kind of all over the place, but it, it does get really powerful towards the end when that comes into view is kind of where it's going. And the Parallax view, it's like everything in that movie. It's totally just, you know, the, the I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It really is like a yeah. psycho... It, I mean, it's a, it's a, the, it's like this monolithic menace that's just everywhere. It's permeate, permeated every part of culture. And it's like, it's so deep. It, it's in, it's like, it's almost like John Carpenter's them. Like you put the sunglasses on and it's all, it's all there. Like, and, and, yeah. you know, you know, John Carpenter's more playful with that theme, but like, that's what parallax is like and parallax is bright and colorful. And, you know, it's like the, has like the celebratory color palette of like Robert Altman's Nashville, but it's, but, but it's, it's done in a way that is trying to terrify you. Yeah. I like that. It's that Fakula and Willis got their, their chops about them there and then applied it to this amazing material on this film. And it really becomes this kind of miracle of those guys with this perfect ability to make you feel totally totally like psychotic almost in the middle of this <laughs> like after three days of the condor you're already kind of used to like here's redford you know operating you know man against the whole machine but looking stylish the whole time <laughs> really wonderful and the the other thing that i thought was amazing going in i forgot that they were both I think divorced in reality, the two Woodward and Bernstein going in this movie, and they never say it in the film, but it's so like, it permeates everything where you're looking at how disheveled they are and how you're wondering like, what is going on in their personal lives? They don't really have personal lives in the film. And I was just realizing that it's almost like in Heat where you're never told explicitly that Vincent Hanna is doing coke the whole time, but it was at one point floating on the motivation so you're like oh this does kind of make sense and even though it's totally unspoken you get the vibe that Mitch and Hannah is coked out and these dudes are like single guys late 20s kind of falling apart <laughs> and in their life that kind of put, like brings them into like this massive moment in history they're hungry remember when you were hungry that's 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 what they are that's what they are these guys who like they've broken out of They've, they've, they've broken, they've shed themselves from any thought that they're going to have normal lives. They have a Jack Warden in your life telling you, you know, just like out of oil, like go get him. It's so amazing. It, it'd be just 
more Jack Warden pep talks for every single reporter. He, he, you need yeah. it. Yeah, I, I didn't realize before watching it this time around that there's two editors or two of the jurors from Twelve Angry Men. Yes, and that like I couldn't think <laughs> of like in this era the two. Those are the kind of editors you'd probably have available to you, like a couple older white guys. But those are the two. If you get to pick two older white guys, like. <laughs> and 12 Angry Men like that that vibe and presence they bring into the film is so wonderful especially up against like the more posh Ben Bradley vibe that you get yeah, it's wonderful you, yeah it, the whole alchemy of this movie is a miracle and we talked about it with not only Redford and Hoffman we talked about it with Pakula and Willis but you talk about it with the rest of that whole cohort of great folk Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to talk to a, a person who's, you know, grinding shoe leather and still filling out notebooks and making phone calls and searching civic databases for leads and uh, and to hear that the movie still resonates and why is, is really cool is with your perspective. So thank you so much for being a part of it. I really appreciate it. Look at you. You've got your reporter's notepad right there. Yeah, you know, they're saying that the new thing this pandemic is going to kill is notepads because they're hard to disinfect and now more reporters are taking notes on the phone. No, no, that's the last thing that'll go. A couple of my colleagues are tweeting about this today that they were, it's easier to disinfect your phone once than a notebook every, you know. No, no, I'm not, I'm not about that. I'm not about that life. Mask, yes. Gloves, yes. Disinfect your pen, but the notebook, the notebook, I, I'm not, I'm not giving it over. All right. Hang in there. You Hydrate. Too, you too, my friend. Take care. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you. A huge thank you again to my guest, Javier Panza, which is at J-P-A-N-Z-A-R on Twitter. You can find a link to all of his work at the LA Times there. Thank you so much for doing the show. Man, really keen uh, to talk to him again uh, in the wake of the civil unrest and very well-deserved civil unrest in Los Angeles to see how that all goes. Guys, this is one of four episodes you're going to receive this week. I'm really looking forward to you listening to them. Thank you so much for supporting the show and continuing to support the show. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes very soon.